Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Joining us today on the podcast, we have as our guest, Hank Nelson. The stories that Hank is going to share with us today have a little bit different of a twist than a lot of the stories that have been shared on the podcast in the past, because one of these stories involves an international component. However, enough said for now. Let me go on and summarize some of the transactional stories you're going to hear on the podcast today, as shared by Hank. In the first transaction that Hank shares with us is how a founder was so focused on his product and making it kind of the Lamborghini in his market niche that he completely ignored what the market was looking for when they were acquiring his type of business. While he was able to make his product really powerful, it did him very little good because this isn't what the market was looking for when they came looking to acquire the business. One of the things that you need to pay particular attention to when you listen to this episode and section of the podcast is what the takeaway that every entrepreneur should have when they are building a product and scaling their company. You have to keep the end in mind. This will be a particularly interesting transactional story for those who are scaling a company right now. Next, Hank shares how being too focused on tax avoidance or tax deferral can cost entrepreneurs more money than they save in taxes. It certainly did for this particular entrepreneur and a second-generation family. I think you'll enjoy the outcome and the things that you'll learn in this story. In the next transaction, Hank shares a story about how two founders increased the value of their business over $16 million in net proceeds because they did two things well. One is that they ask for advice, and then they follow that advice. Now, the advice I would give you as you listen to this episode and part of the podcast is that you listen carefully to what advice was given and that you think about how you could follow a similar path and learn from this particular outcome in this transactional story. Finally, Hank shares how three partners were at different ages, and over time, their goals and objectives had changed dramatically. Listen to how he was able to resolve these issues with the vastly different needs of each of the partners and how they were able to each get what they needed when they sold the business. This particular transactional story is worth its weight in gold if you have partners in the business that may have different goals and objectives as you do, and you are looking to exit the business at some point in time. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have Hank Nelson with us. Thanks for being with us here today, Hank. Would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about where you're located and what your company specializes in? Well, thank you, Marvin. Um, my name is Hank Nelson. I'm the Managing Director of Medadnock Advisors. We're an M&A advisory investment banking firm focused on the technology market and value-added business services companies. Uh, we were founded in 2009. We're based in Boston, Massachusetts, and we work primarily with entrepreneur and owner-based companies with no venture capital or private equity investment. We assist them in their financing needs, which typically are sell-side engagements or um, debt enhancement um, to achieve growth and then subsequent M&A transaction down the road. All right. Well, thanks for that. Well, what we're going to do here today is chat a little bit about some of those transactions you've been involved in over the years, some that uh, didn't turn out very well. And I think we'll start with those that had their challenges. And would you take a few minutes and talk about one of those transactions? And maybe we can drag a few insights and learnings from the experience that you went through with these companies. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, one example uh, was that we were approached by an $8 million SaaS-based company in a good market, which is staffing and recruiting. And uh, they also 
uh, have a CRM for that particular market. Uh, there was a, a one founder uh, with a co-investor that started the company. And then there were subsequent investors, uh, three professionals with multiple rounds. So they were fairly well financed. And that fits our profile of uh, our typical client base. Um, so a SaaS company's enterprise value uh, is typically based on a multiple of the SaaS revenues adjusted for various factors. And those typically are size or market growth rate, and then the churn, uh, grosser net cost of the acquisition, uh, customer acquisition, and the upsell revenues. And a company needs to be tracking and managing the business from this basis, uh, not just the top line and the cash flow. And these particular indices are drivers of value and indicators of current and future success to an acquirer. Therefore, obviously, uh, areas of some uh, intense diligence in that particular process. In this specific uh, instance, the client was skimping on implementing an internal system to track these areas and devote resources instead to the development of the product. And we see this quite a bit, whereby a business owner has a bias to their particular area of knowledge or comfort. In this specific uh, instance, the founder was an engineer. Um, his co-founder slash investor was also an engineer. So they, you know, inherently thought that building a better mousetrap, if you will, was going to allow them to achieve, you know, the full value of the company and that it would be um, expressed, if you will, untold. Uh, but you obviously need to demonstrate that to the outside community. So when you say they skimped on other parts of the development of their company, give us a little idea of what that included. Sure. So companies uh, of their size at that point typically will go and secure uh, an outside program that is specific to tracking SaaS-based statistics. So why don't you define what SAS is for the audience that may not be familiar with that acronym? SAS uh, refers to software as a service, whereby a company will pay either a monthly, quarterly, or annual subscription uh, to an organization that will typically be hosting a software solution to run a specific part of a company. And that can be, for instance, their accounting department. It can be the CRM um, uh, internally that's used by the company. It could be uh, for, you know, product management uh, or workflow. So a company like a Salesforce, most people are familiar with, that would be a SaaS-based company, right? That is correct. So they were similar to that. They had a subscription-based service? Yes, they did. And then therefore, you know, being able to track the customer behavior and then the growth of the customers over a period of time and to see what's happening from a churn perspective on a you know, monthly and quarterly and annual basis is imperative. So when you refer to churn, define that for us. Churn refers to uh, two things. One is the aggregate either gain, loss or gain of a customer. And then also to the amount of revenue dollars um, either lost or gained. Because a customer may decrease the amount of, let's say, uh, modules within a system, or they may increase them. So the goal overall for a SaaS-based company, therefore, is to minimize the amount of churn, but also to have additional uh, upsell of modules into a client base to increase the revenues over a period of time minimizing the churn. So what I hear you getting at here is that you had some engineers that were excited about their product and focused on the development of the bells and whistles of the product, but not so much on tracking what was going on with their customer base. Is that what you're saying? Yes, Marvin. In this specific case, um, you had one part-time clerical individual that was responsible for maintaining all this information in the company also included a part of the billing, it's tracked on uh, various Excel uh, spreadsheets. And so it was quite messy and very frankly, it wasn't um, uh, very reliable in any sense of the manner. So they had a great product, but demonstrating they had a great product based on the flow of money and customers through the business was far from perfect. Exactly, because someone acquiring 
a SaaS-based company certainly is looking at the market and they're certainly looking at the product, but you also need to see the behavior at a very finite level within the client base. And they were not able to, uh, to do that in any uh, meaningful way that provided the level of comfort to, to an acquirer that they typically would see. So when you actually took this to market, tell us how this rolled out. Was there an interest from the market and people that saw the value of what they were doing? Well, before we got there, one other thing that did happen is uh, the product itself had an advanced architecture and that it was cloud-based, it was scalable, and it was extremely competitive in the market uh, that they uh, were positioned in. However, the product had not been documented, meaning that um, there hadn't been notes written as to the, how the product was, de- was developed and there had been a lack of design and the flow process. So why would that be important to an acquirer? I mean, they have the technology. Why, why would that be so crucial to an acquirer? Yeah, so what happens is this makes it difficult to transition uh, a product to other personnel, let's say with a newly acquired company, uh, or to integrate with their, with their own product or suite of products. So it was okay when they were a standalone organization where they had the same engineers working on this on a day-to-day basis, but to, to take the product and then therefore make it available to a wider engineering group to be able to work on it, uh, they were going to be impaired in doing that. And so um, that, to a degree, um, you know, again, brought degradation to the, um, to the bat, you know, to one of the you know, core assets that the company had. So they weren't able to demonstrate it, and it wasn't, I guess, uh, portable. So that word portable probably takes on a whole different meaning when you're looking at transferring that technology over to, as you said, another engineering group. I guess they would almost have to figure it out on their own when there's no roadmap and documentation to have them know how to integrate it into what they're doing. Right. What you're risking, what you bring to the table in that particular environment is you're introducing risk uh, and you're introducing cost uh, in doing that, which obviously, um, again, um, you know, reduces the overall value of the product itself. So once they sort of understood this, what was the game plan from that point on? Yeah. So we uh, were hired to represent them. in a strategic sale, the investors at that point really wanted to uh, see an exit. And we brought in a third party to assist in developing the required SASH measurements. Um, but, you know, they were loosely, they were ended up being loose based upon the ins- internal systems that were available and not quite as tight as one would normally hope, as they explained in the diligence environment. A normal multiple on a company like this is approximately three times revenues, but based upon the lack of statistics and the lack of documentation in the IP and concern about portability, they ended up achieving a 2x multiple. And the reason for the 2x multiple really is translated directly into cost and risk, as you said before, right? I mean, higher cost in making the transfer and a higher perceived risk drives down the price. The other thing, too, is they weren't able to 100% demonstrate the customer behavior and acceptance of the product through the um, statistical performance within the client base. So that was the third um, spoke, if you will, uh, unfortunately. And so they lost a third of their value based on how they were not sold persistent and diligent in structuring the documentation and the metrics of their product and acceptance into the marketplace. But it did close, right? It did close. And it was obviously discounted, reflective of the inherent risk that, uh, unfortunately, someone was willing to assume for all those reasons and the lack of ability to demonstrate the client base uh, success. Hank, what would you say for our audience that's uh, listening in here would be the real takeaway in this? If someone out there has a, a SaaS-based company and they're looking at exiting down the road, what would you advise uh, using this particular transaction as a basis for making a takeaway for our audience? What would that be? Yes, I'd say the advice 
goes beyond just anyone uh, that's operating a SaaS-based company. Um, but it's any owner whereby I think you really need to begin with the end in mind. Just don't invest in areas that you're comfortable with. Invest in the ones that drive the marketability of your company and that proves the overall asset value. So in this particular case, just for clarification purposes, they invested in the product because that was their area of comfort. That's how they perceived that value would be created in the marketplace. They missed really what the market is looking at is an entirely different set of criteria and metrics. Yes. In other words, what does the market view as uh, the levers, if you will, to also gauge the value of the product? And it was these other areas also. And they missed them off there. Well, that's a great takeaway, Hank. I think that that will serve a lot of our audience well with that big takeaway of beginning with the ending in mind and addressing what the market values, not necessarily what you value. Well, Hank, why don't we jump into another transaction that had its challenges? Can you share one of those with us? Sure. Uh, We have another situation uh, where we have a company that uh, designs and manufactures sensors that are used in high-value long-term assets, uh, meaning uh, nautical, uh, military aircraft, heavy-duty construction machines, trains. So these are actual sensors that are included in the product design? Yeah, so they design once and they're included in it in long life assets that uh, may have, let's say, a 10-year, 15-year life uh, that need to be replaced um, on a fairly consistent basis from a, ma- from a maintenance standpoint. Uh, so it's a great business model. Uh, you designed in once and you have a 10-year uh, contract in essence. Um, so the company it was, uh, was started in the 1940s. This was the second generation owner that wanted to retire. Uh, there was no family involved, uh, but he had groomed a, a president and the business was sustainable uh, going forward. Done a good job with that. Uh, the financial profile is they had reoccurring revenues. Now they weren't contracted, but they were uh, clearly able to demonstrate where their future revenues were coming from you know, pretty much on a two to three year forward basis. Their revenue base was approximately $7 million. Uh, They also had many family members taking salary and personal expenses, but they did a good job of tracking it all. And their adjusted EBITDA was about 1.4 million with audited financials. Well, that's unusual for a company of this size, isn't it, to have full audited financials? Yes, but they were doing business with some fairly reputable individual, you know, companies, sizable uh, so the ownership felt it necessary to always be able to, um, well, because they were small, be able to prove their sustainability going forward uh, in case that had come into question. So it was uh, shrewd on their behalf to make that investment along the way. Since it's a family operation and second generation, you said they were, had a lot of people on the payroll that were family members and things like that. Did they run the business kind of as focusing on other things than just the business? No, the, the owner uh, was exclusively de- devoted to the business. Um, and he really had no other outside interests. Uh, he ran it as, you know, a CEO, uh, step back a little bit, but uh, no, he was focused on the business and his primary role was uh, customer contact and, you know, he liked to dabble in the product development area, which he was very good at. Do they deal internationally and do they have tax considerations to consider? Well, they uh, had structured um, in uh, going back to the 40, let's say the 50s and 60s, they had put in a structure whereby... Um, the idea was to minimize the tax exposure on, a, on an annual basis. Um, and they had a structure where they had a C-Corp in New York and an S-Corp in New York and, and also a Swiss subsidiary. A Switzerland subsidiary, right? Yes. Uh, we were, you know, they were moving through some various products and a, a mock-up would happen there. Um, and, you know, they were able to uh, minimize their, uh, their taxes on an annual basis. Um, you know, and also for estate purposes. Um, and what they didn't quite understand, though, um, is at exit that some of these tax obligations, you know, get trued up. When you say trued up, define that for our audience. Well, 
what happens here is over, you know, um, a 30, 40 year period, more, um, the various uh, laws, regulations, and so forth, uh, you know, change. And what the company did not do is keep current with the various structure and with the tax authorities and with the overall structure um, to make sure that they understood the, you know, the tax bill, let's say, at the end of the business or whatever their uh, exit was going to be. They never really thought about the exit of the business outside of the family. And when it became apparent that this individual, the owner, um, was going to have to pursue that, you know, he was already in his 70s and, you know, it was, um, they were kind of stuck with this various tax structure at that point. When you talk about tax structure and circumstances like this, are you talking about a lot of the recapture and eventual payment of deferred taxes? Yes. So what happens now in Switzerland, for instance, is when you go to exit that a particular subsidiary from there and close it down, which was necessary in this particular situation, um, you're subject to a tax on uh, all the historical, let's say, earnings um, before you close the subsidiary on a, uh, you know, going back to the early 50s when it was opened. Um, however, as you can see, you know, from, from that period, you know, the accumulated earnings and profits from that subsidiary, you know, can be substantial. So, you know, they, they had imposed this tax on uh, entities about 10 years ago. Uh, so it certainly hadn't been contemplated in the original uh, tax scheme, if you will. That is just one example. And certainly, as we all know, the tax laws in the states, you know, change from, you know, uh, from period to period. Um, and none of that had really been, compli- you know, you know um, contemplated, if you will, at exit of the business. So kind of fast forward here, what we're saying is that over a period of time, laws change, tax circumstances change, and eventually all this catches up with you. And so now they're looking to exit and there's a day of reckoning here that's coming. Uh, How did this unfold? Sure. So uh, the company itself, you know, in the uh, production of the census uh, had historically used, um, quite a bit of chemicals uh, and they had been in the same manufacturing facility for about 30 years. Um, so no one was really interested in a stock sale because of the liability. So it was really going to end up being an, an asset sale, which is the only thing that would be um, attractive to anyone. Um, so we, you know, we looked at various options uh, from a, a target standpoint and we found a private equity firm that had, recently acquired a like type company about 30 miles away uh, that was constrained from a manufacturing um, standpoint. So we saw great synergy. Uh, We ended up with an LOI from them. An LOI meaning a letter of intent, correct? Letter of intent. And, you know, it's 6.2 times uh, EBITDA, about 8.6 million. And that was a, it was for the company and the uh, assets, quality of the assets in the manufacturing facility and so forth. That was a pretty good deal. Um, however, when the um, tax analysis was finally completed by the tax attorneys, it turned out the effective tax rate was going to be over 58%. Let's understand that. So they had a great offer, 6.2% or times. 6x, Yeah. Even so, eight nine million dollars, whatever that works out to be. But you had a fifty eight percent effective tax rate that they were going to lose on that sale. That is correct because you, as an asset sale, you'd be closing down the Swiss facility, uh, the Swiss subsidiary. Um, you'd have a liquidating dividend um, from the C corp uh, up to the. Uh, personal S corp for the uh, for the owner, um, which and uh, you know you go through all of that, and plus the fact that we're in the state of New York, which is not exactly known as being tax friendly, um, you ended up with something that was you know obviously significantly high. So if I'm doing my math correct, that works out to three and a half million dollar range that they would actually clear from this transaction, right? Well, that is <laughs> that must have been a big uh, surprise to them. Yeah, they understood that there would be a significant bite. 
from the tax authorities, but no one had really done the analysis with respect to closing down um, the Swiss subsidiary uh, or the, you know, the full liquidation of the C-Corp. Um, so, you know, and, you know, they never really wanted to, to, uh, to spend the money, if you will, or make the investment on that. They had never kept the key here. They had never been uh, staying abreast by having their, their taxing authorities stay abreast of the various laws and updating their plan as they went along. You take a look at a situation like this, what would be the big takeaway for owners out there that may have some tax implications, probably not as sophisticated or expansive as this particular situation was, but, you know, taxes are always a consideration when exiting. What what advice would you give as using this as a transaction that can give some insight to what you need to plan for as far as taxes go? Well, one of the things I tell people all the time in a transaction is it's not the gross uh, amount of the transaction. It's always the net. And, you know, in certain instances, um, you can come up with um, structures within a transaction to minimize a tax um, um, obligation or delay it. But the reality is that you need to really figure out what your net is going to be in your tax obligation uh, up front before you really start to consider or go far down a path with respect to a transaction. And you should keep any, if you are making, um, if you have any uh, tax strategies in place, you need to make sure that those are kept up to date and they're current. Well, I think that's insightful information. Uh, often, the tax implications are not top of mind and are only considered near the end of the transaction as it's getting ready to close and sometimes even after the transaction. So I think that's a really insightful takeaway for, for those that are listening in here today. Why don't you share a couple of transactions with us now that have some good takeaways as well as a, a great outcome for the owners of these businesses that you dealt with to help them exit? All right. Well, thank you, Marvin. The first example that I'd like to give you is we, again, have a software as a service company, a SaaS company. And they also have a CRM solution. This one's for insurance agents and their providers uh, to manage their customer contact uh, and amongst themselves. Company is eight, year, eight years old. It's well run with two principals uh, that started the company. They had come from the insurance industry, one from insurance and one from insurance tech. Uh, and they had built a good business. Um, they had come to me to have a conversation on how best to position the company for sale and what their options would be. They weren't necessarily looking to sell the company at that moment, but they were prudent enough to say, all right, what do we want to do, you know, in the next three to five years uh, or even further on down the road? So it sounds like they were doing some preliminary homework on eventually selling their business, but they weren't charging into your office saying, you know, we want to sell this tomorrow. That's correct. They were, you know, probably in the, at the time, middle to late 40s, and they were just, you know, laying out, okay, what's the next chapter or two bring to us and, and what we want to do with the business and to, you know, with ourselves personally. And so you met, sat down and chatted with them, and how did that discussion unfold and how did you move on from there? Sure. So when we sat with the company, we learned that their revenues were approximately $12 million a year. Uh, $10 million of it were SaaS revenue, so they had a, a high concentration of SaaS revenue compared to the total company, meaning they didn't have a lot of service um, revenue with that. Uh, they made their SaaS matrix in terms of their customers, and as we spoke previously, you know, the churn, the customer retention. So let me just note here, based on a similar SaaS company or a SaaS company that you dealt with previously that didn't know really their churn, their customer profile, the internal metrics of their customer, this was an entirely different type of situation where, from what you're telling us here, that that information was readily available. Yes, they had uh, invested in the, in the necessary uh, software, if you will, licensed to a SaaS basis, the software, uh, and had all the measurements necessary and were managing it uh, in, an, in a, um, you know, actually in an aggressive basis. 
they were very good with that. Um, and what we, we did discover though, in our review is in the, um, in the customer base, uh, and they did have one area, uh, where they did have exceptionally high churn and the, uh, that one area was a bit hidden, you know, within the overall churn of the company because it represented a historical customer base that they had from when they first started the company. Meaning that um, when they first when they first started the company, they ended up um, on a much lower level type client base than where they had positioned themselves and worked themselves up to at this point. And they had kept those customers along for all these years. Uh, what they were doing is those customers would come and go and they would churn and they would drag a lot of the resources from their support group and, um, and utilize those resources whereby they couldn't focus necessarily on the higher valued customers. That was one issue they had. So what you're really saying is that these legacy customers that they started with were probably expensive to service. There was high churn, devoted resources and attention to them that far outweighed the revenue that they were being able to generate from that specific segment. That is is, uh, 100% true. Customer profitability within the segment um, it was not positive to say the least. And the other, and, and the other issue they had globally within their client base, although they didn't have, um, high churn, it was not an issue, but the clients, the customers were all on monthly subscriptions. And that's where, again, that was a more of a legacy issue from when they started the company. And a lot of SaaS companies do this is, is they go after the SMB market. SMB meaning small to mid-sized businesses. Yeah, small to medium-sized businesses. And they, uh, the customers can sign up on a monthly subscription. And that's to gain market share. And it's to get some traction in the marketplace. And, it, you know, it's a good business model for a company starting out like that. Um, however, as they moved up market, um, they didn't transition uh, to a quarterly or an annual subscription basis. And while those customers were not churning, they kept them, they were still on a monthly subscription. Now, the problem you have is when you when a outside party starts to look at the pricing structure and the uh, client base in an acquisition, they're looking to see uh, a client base that's on an annual subscription, not on a monthly and so, therefore, they will not assign as high a value, obviously, you know, to the company with a monthly subscription as to a annual. That's kind of interesting because normally you would think, you know, from a logical standpoint, that monthly subscription revenue in totality is higher uh, because generally when you pay on an annual basis, you get a discount. Isn't that how this worked? Not necessarily. Um, you don't. You may not get a discount if you pay on an annual basis. You just convert them if need be and, and move them up along the line in the history of the company. So that's not necessarily true. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So in this particular niche, that wasn't. They just collected the money up front and having money in hand at the same price as a monthly income flow is a much better deal. Yeah, and, it, and you know, collecting it on a monthly basis is a lot of administrative costs. Yeah, a lot of costs associated with that. Yeah. Right, and, and although you had the, uh, the, let's say, the you know the middle tier and the upper tier of their client base did not uh, experience churn, um, from a buyer's perspective, that risk is always there. You know that when you have customers locked in on an annual basis, obviously, um, you're able to manage the customer base um, you know, a lot closer in that, you know, when people are coming up for renewal, uh, you're able to satisfy them three to six months ahead of time, you know, instead of on a, um, you know, month to month basis. Yeah, a lot of benefits to that. Yeah, instead of being reactive. So now that you've sat down and met with them, pointed out some of these areas of concern, at least at some point when they are going to exit, what did they do with that? Did they walk out the door and come back and did they change? Well, we sat down with them, and um, their EBITDA percentages uh, reflected, you know, a mature, well-run company. They were doing good. 
um, but they had lofty expectations in terms of um, what they could derive in an exit. And that was partly uh, driven by reviewing, you know, an average multiple for a SaaS company. And they ended up being disappointed by our analysis when we came back to them. And, you know, we cited the, the churn on the lower end and the uncertainty of the revenues, even from their uh, premium clients. And the second thing was the, uh, the monthly based subscription model. So we uh, proposed a solution, which was to convert from a monthly to an annual, the client base, and, you know, do that by offering discounts and payment terms to transition and, and just move the base along the way. And then even discount for those customers that wanted to sign up for multi-year contracts. Um, and then secondarily to drop the lower level, high maintenance, in essence, really unprofitable clients that were contributing to the churn. And they were concerned uh, inherently, and we see this a lot with business owners, where and you're taking out a line of revenue. So there's always a focus, and I clearly understand it, uh, that you've worked hard to acquire these clients. And, you know, inherently, you just don't want to, um, you know, take a, uh, a hit, if you will, to the top line. So what we ended up doing was put in a, uh, a, credit, a SaaS credit line uh, for financing in case they did experience any issues with respect to, um, you know, degradation in the revenues um, that would result in a problem with cash flow or anything like that. And so that gave them the cushion and, and the comfort, if you will, that they, they needed to really move forward with the program. So what they ended up doing uh, was uh, transitioning out of that lower level client base and they did convert the good majority of the premier uh, clients, medium-sized clients, over about a two-year period. It took them a while. Uh, but again, as I said to you in the beginning, they were patient people, and you know they, they wanted a plan, and they went off and they executed on the plan. So out of curiosity, how long did it take them to come back to you and said that they're now ready to exit? Well, we, keep in con you know, we kept in constant you know, contact with them, and we would talk to them on a quarterly basis, you know, to make sure that everything was working for them because, you know, we, we obviously felt, um, you know, an obligation, if you will, having uh, brought this up and, and suggested to them strongly that they move in this direction, that they'd be, you know, successful. And if they ran into any challenges, we wanted to, you know, be helpful with them. Um, they got there, as I mentioned, in about two years. And at that point, they came back to us and, and said, okay, we're, we're ready now to go out and uh, test the market. And we also have a better appreciation of what we want to do going forward on a personal level. So what would have been the expectation when you came back with a disappointing number? What kind of multiple were they looking at at that time? Yeah, so we came back um, with a multiple of about 2.7 off revenues. And when they came back and had tweaked and fixed some of the recommendations that you had made, what was the multiple at that point in time? Well, we, we increased it when we went to market. I can tell you that when we, what we ended up with, um, you know, they ended up with a multiple of 3.5 at sale. So they went from 2.7, you know, to 3.5. So what did that represent in actual exit value when the deal closed? What would they have expected at closing initially, and what did they get in real dollar terms? Sure, and understanding there was a two-year, two and a half, well, actually about a three-year period. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And they had increased their revenues in the interim, but uh, the initial expectation was $32 million and they ended up uh, closing it for about forty-eight five. So they went, obviously they were a good company and they were growing, but making these tweaks where their margins went up, their churn went down, they were able to be much more focused and profitable. They jumped just about a full point at 0.8 of a multiple and that drove the value by $16 million. Sure. And you know, their revenues went up. They were a more focused company in terms of their core market, which made them um, yeah, an acquirer uh, put more value on that because they weren't, you know, an acquirer was not interested in the lower market with the higher churn, which was going to be tough to manage. So they were, you know, they were more streamlined and they, you know, they 
obviously kept the same headcount and added to it. But those folks were, were focused on satisfying the premier clients and not spending their time on the legacy clients. So it churn went down too. Now, the takeaways that we have here, Hank, seem really important to those of our audience that are looking here. And, and from my point of view, I'm going to kind of give you my perspective on this is that, you know, here you have a couple of owners that were running a great business, but they were smart enough to come and seek out advice to really understand where they were at and what they needed to do before they went to market. And that simple sitting down and talking to someone like yourself who has experience and insight into the market and can provide them some guidance on what they needed to do to tweak their model. Uh, that was a, an $8 million a year delta that they were able to take to the bank a couple of three years and $16 million later. And there's a great takeaway in that. Don't show up at the last minute and expect to maximize your exit value. Take some preliminary steps to think about the time when you will exit where you need to be. And I think that is a great takeaway in this situation. And you did a great job advising them. I agree with you. They sought advice before going to market. Um, and they developed a plan to increase the value. We helped them with that. And they executed on it. Perfect. Yeah. Right. We didn't do it. They yeah. did. And, you know, we just came in and, you know, we did what we normally do. And we were extremely pleased that they were able to, uh, to you know, end up with uh, something that was substantially more. Yeah, ideas are great, but execution is where it's at. Well, let's wrap up with a final transaction here that has a similar type of great outcome for the entrepreneurs involved. Sure. I'd be uh, pleased to. Here we have a, a technology services company with revenues approaching $20 million. Uh, the profitability is within the industry standard. Um, they're about 15 years old with three founders, um, but they have different directions for the business and timelines for exit. Uh, the company itself um, is hosting, a. they host servers and computers, uh, do data storage and archiving, um, and technology services to low and middle market clients uh, from a service standpoint. So they're like an outsource, outsourcing of um, the computer requirements. Isn't this industry, though, kind of commoditized? How do they differentiate themselves? Yeah, so that line of business, if you will, uh, is commoditized at this point. And everyone within that, you know, that business, you know, they'll find a point where, where they'll try and differentiate themselves. But at the end of the day, they're all pretty much, um, they're looking feel the same. Um, and there was, there is an emerging market of which they were, were uh, participating in, uh, which was developing, um, through the licensing of Microsoft teams, um, the development of, uh, of customized solutions. Um, and they were doing it within one or two vertical markets, pharmaceutical being the primary uh, one. And that also brought maintenance revenues too. And so they were getting money now from a customization of, uh, of solutions and they were getting um, maintenance dollars and the solutions that they would be delivering were, um, you know, mission critical solutions for these types of companies. So they were changing, you know, this is a change of paradigm from a commoditized type services offering. Now this was um, at that point, at this point, probably about 10, 15% of the revenues uh, it was barely breaking even, um, but it's a rapidly growing area uh, overall within this segment, and it has a pretty high multiple. Um, the um, the is going to be investment required, obviously, to to build this out going forward. Uh, there's a market opportunity right now, so they were going to have to hire additional people and, and really aggressively go after in an even more meaningful way the niche that they had established. However, the issue became uh, of the three owners, you had one individual uh, who had been the principal founder. Um, that individual wanted to retire. So were the founders, you said of, of the founders, are they, how, what was the spread in age? Uh, so one of them was, uh, I'm going to say, approaching 70, thereabouts. There was uh, a second one that was, at the time, probably late 50s. And 
the CEO, who is the one running the company at this point day to day, was in his early 50s. So the owner wants the senior individual that was approximately 70, you know, he wanted to retire. Uh, the second individual wanted to work for a number of years. Um, but, you know, uh, did, was and wanted to make an investment uh, in the, you know, in this uh, endeavor, but not a substantial one. He was open to a sale of the company, um, but at the same time, he wanted to take most of uh, the proceeds off the table um, for obvious reasons, but wanted to continue on and working. Uh, the, C the current CEO wanted to grow the new market opportunity, and he wanted resources to be able to do it, um, and he was willing to... Um, you know, secure funding if necessary from the outside. So they had divergent um, interest at that point. They certainly did have different interests and objectives because of their ages. Yeah. How did this work out? Yeah. So um, they were, you know, they looked at, um, you know, various options and they always seemed to be conflicted. And we sat down with them um, and we said, okay, you know, we, um, we can perhaps uh, draw up an, uh, an outline for a sale that would accomplish, and let's work on this together, the four of us, uh, to satisfy all, you know, all, you know, everyone, everyone's desires here. And uh, that's in essence really what we put together. And, you know, I, I called it a, you know, a straw transaction. Um, so again, you know, we, um, we put something together for the retiring owner. And, and what, what did you give him? Yeah, so he would uh, receive liquidity uh, immediately for his position, um, and then we actually restructured it that it you know would also include a sale of personal goodwill with payments uh, to lower the, uh, the effective tax rate and spread some of it. But that was his own personal decision. But he would he would effectively be out from the beginning um, and uh, be able to retire. Uh, the second individual, um, his you know, real concern was being uh, able to ensure that he was going to receive um, his full pay, if you will, um, for the next couple of years as a bridge, three to five years until his retirement, which was simple because we, we put in place an employment agreement and then a personal services contract. We said that had to be, you know, part of. And how long did that last? Yeah, so we had the employment agreement for three years and the personal services agreement for two. That's what we put in place for a structure. And then for the CEO, what we said is, um, you know, what we, you know, he was willing to uh, roll and in about 50% of his interest in his interest in the company over to the, I'll say the acquirer. And we could structure this on a tax-free basis. Um, and, you know, therefore, that individual um, could continue to run, let's say, this subsidiary, but also participate in a second bite of the apple in a recapitalization. Uh, and we built in some, you know, liquidation options and triggers um, so that, you know, he could put his stock to the company, if you will. What type of acquirer looked at the company? What was the main market for this? Was it all private equity or were they strategic or what? Yeah, this market is um, pretty much uh, strategic acquirers. Uh, some are backed by private equity. So fortunately, you know, we have, uh, and they have decent resources. Uh, and the market is um, it's pretty aggressive right now. So we have active private equity individuals, you know, investing in this space. Um, so we have, you know, the sophistication necessary to get a transaction done. So we went out and we looked at, you know, the types of companies where, you know, this, this company geographically or from a product standpoint would fit. Um, and, you know, that had, kept, you know, private equity backing to the, uh, to the acquirer. Um, and so we put together a, proposed straw transaction without necessarily a, a price uh, and said, this is the outline of what we would need to complete a transaction. If you're interested in, you know, accommodating a discussion with this type of model, we'd like to speak with you. And so that's how we went out to market uh, and then, you know, engaged the various folks uh, along the way. 
it sounds like you were able to get pretty close to what you had proposed. Yeah, we ended up with a, a multiple of seven and a half of EBITDA, which is, you know, pretty much market rate. You know, it wasn't above, wasn't below. Um, but we were able to satisfy the constituencies. Which is probably the more important factor here. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really focused necessarily on the value as much in maximizing the value. And this, it was, you know, kind of finessing, if you will, the various targets to see who, who, could, uh, who could accommodate it all. Hank, in this type of situation, what is really the takeaway when you have multiple partners here? What is the big takeaway for our audience here if there are owners and entrepreneurs out there that there are two or three involved in the company that have, in this case here, dramatically different age differences? What would be the big takeaway that you would suggest? All right. Number one is each individual really needs to sit down and decide, okay, what do I want to do? And number two is you know, let's say the partners um, need to sit down and be very open with each other and communicate. And I, I've seen numerous times where, you know, in the first instance, it's not, you know, the individual themselves may not explicitly know what they want to do. And then they really can't, obviously, then you get into an environment where it's, you know, the partners may not communicate well. Well, nothing good is going to happen out of that. As a matter of fact, usually nothing happens, period. Um, what you want to do is, um, you know, be very direct and be open with each other as to what you want to try and accomplish. And you lay it on the table and then say, okay, you know, can we now figure out a way amongst the, let's say in this case, three of us, be able to put something together to accomplish our goals. In this case, um, these folks were all close to each other. They had worked together, you know, for a number of years and they were honest with each other and they communicated, um, they didn't quite understand that there were avenues to uh, approach from a, a transaction standpoint that you could put together uh, to satisfy all three constituencies. I think often when you don't sell a business every other year, you just don't know what the options are. And in this case, you had a very elegant solution where there was a customized solution for every partner that met their needs. And I think the big takeaway here is specifically that, is that there are a lot of options out there to meet the needs of partners with divergent views. Well, Hank, this has been great. Uh, you've been very generous with your time here today. Appreciate you sharing these insights with us here and our audience today. If someone wanted to reach out to you uh, after the podcast and get a hold of you and chat with you about some of the things we've chatted about here today or some other things uh, specifically in the SaaS world out there, uh, how would they go about reaching you? Surely. Well, you could uh, email me at hnelson at monadnockadvisors.net. That's M-O-N-A-D-N-O-C-K advisors.net. Um, all you may call me at 508-962-2759. All right, Hank. Well, thanks for being here. And this is Marvin L. Storm, and we'll see you on the next episodes of Business Exit Stories. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. <laughs>